appreciate the hymn writers helping us express to the Lord what we want to be true in our heart. With all our heart, we long to serve the Lord. Sometimes I wish they would write those in expressions of desire rather than statements of fact, because I'm not sure that's always true in my heart. I long for it to be true, but I'm not sure it always is. Psalm 19, uh, turn there with me if you would, Psalm 19. I'll take a few minutes and consider uh, this tremendous, tremendous text. I, uh, a few years ago, started a series that I told you when I started it that it would be one that I probably would never finish, um, one that I'll kind of keep open-ended in my pastoral ministry and uh, come back to off and on, and it's time to come back to it, and it's a series on prayer, prayer God wants to hear. Um, I say we're going to keep coming back to it because I don't know that we could ever exhaust the topic itself, Um, and uh, there's so much uh, example in the scripture of how we should pray, and so that's what the logic is of the series. Psalm 34 tells us that the, the ears of the Lord are toward the cry of the righteous. That's an astounding thought. The ears of the Lord are toward the cry. Of the righteous. Psalm 145, verse 18 tells us that the Lord is near to all who call on him. So the Lord is, is predisposed to hear his children and to be near to them when they cry out to him. That is an overwhelmingly encouraging thought. It also means that our Lord hears a lot of prayer, right? Because righteous people pray a lot. And uh, not all prayers are, are made the same, if I could say it that way. And I would imagine our Lord hears a lot of prayers that are, eh, not so great. But he mercifully hears them anyways. He listens to a lot of prayer. But he's given us a lot of teaching in his word, a lot of revelation to help us pray better. Uh, and in fact, I think he's given us examples of prayer so that we would know how he wants us to pray. That he, He's taught us how He would desire us to pray by giving us recorded prayers in Scripture. So my logic is if a prayer is in the Word, if it it made the cut and entered sacred writ, it it probably passed the Lord's test. Like it was a good prayer uh, inspired by His Spirit, I think we could say, right? If it's in the Scriptures. So uh, if there is a prayer recorded in Scripture, it's one we ought to pay special attention to and learn from. And then I think seek to model in our own prayer life. As you think about prayer, I also think uh, one of the reasons we'll keep coming back to this series uh, as long as God gives me breath and the ability to serve is because you always need a tune-up on your prayer life, right? A couple years back, I took our Suburban in to get the, the alignment fixed, and guess what? It needs its alignment fixed again. It's just one of those things on your car that just gets out of whack, and you need it to get fixed periodically. Same is true in your spiritual life, especially, I think, of our prayer life. It's, it's easy to uh, kind of fall into some ditches in our prayer life, to kind of slough off and, and get lazy in prayer, uh, or to get too mechanical, too rigid, too religious, can I say, uh, too um, uh, oriented towards a system or a pattern. Uh, we tend to pray the same things about the same old things over and over and over again. And so we need a tune-up. We, we need a recalibration. And I only know how to do that from the Word. The Word gives us that needed recalibration, that needed tune-up. And so I hope to do that over the next few Sunday evenings that we have together uh, in the Word, about five or six I'm planning to just kind of come back to this idea 
of helping us evaluate our own prayer lives, grow, get recalibrated, and find new joy in this wonderful, wonderful um, relationship that God's given us in prayer with Him. When I started the series several years ago, I started by defining what prayer is. And so I want to just touch on that briefly and then jump into Psalm 19. Uh, but often in your Christian journeys, you think about something, it, it helps, at least for me, to define it, to, to think about what actually am I doing here? What actually is that? What's its purpose? And, and why has God called me to that? And, and how does he use it? So like for evangelism, it helps me to understand what's going on here. Who am I? Who is God? Whose role is who's here? Uh, how does that work? And that helps me do better in evangelism. Same is true, I believe, for prayer. So to understand it actually helps me uh, do it in a way I think that is more honoring to the Lord. And so what is, what is prayer? Well, primarily, prayer is an expression of faith. We've been called to, to walk a life of faith and not sight. And so when we pray, we are seeking the unseen and invisible God. And we are believing all the things we know to be true about God are getting put into action when we pray. We're, we're believing Him to be real. We're believing Him to care. We're believing Him to have the power to address the things we're bringing to His throne. We're, we're believing all these things we know to be true about God. It's an expression of faith. And I think then prayer actually is one of the main theaters of war in which we battle against our flesh to not walk by sight. And we do that on a lot of fronts. We do that on the obedience front. We do that on the battling with our will against the Lord's will front. Uh, we, we battle not walking by sight a lot. But I think one of the main, maybe even the main theater, I might go to the mat on that. I think the main theater in which we battle to walk by faith is in this theater of prayer, expressing our belief in the living God. So prayer is an expression of faith. We also saw that prayer is the plea of spiritual children. It's the, the cry of God's kids to him. We're adopted into his family and, and can't help but talk to our heavenly father. If, you're, if you actually know God as your father by his grace, you can't help but talk to him. Just like a young child can't help but cry out for dad and mom. This is what prayer is. It's the, the plea of spiritual children. And, and that then shapes how we pray, doesn't it? So if that's true, if, if prayer is primarily an expression of faith as spiritual children, then that shapes how we pray, doesn't it? So as kids, as God's children, we're believing that he's patient and compassionate and kind and gentle and loving and powerful and holy and able to do the things we need him to do that we can be faithful. We also learn that prayer is talking to God. Kind of simple definitions, but really important. So prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer is the plea of spiritual children. And prayer is talking to God. And that seems like a, a duh statement. I get it. But it, sometimes we have to absolutely state the obvious. I'll never forget, I was uh, at one of my first funerals, and it happened to be for Julie's grandma, and uh, in that funeral, it was it was with a bunch of Catholics, uh, and they had asked me to preach the funeral, which I was happy to preach the gospel of grace uh, in that funeral. And as we were getting ready to to have the service, one of the one of um, Julie's dad's sisters asked me to lead 
the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know the Lord's Prayer, but I don't have it memorized to recite it in front of everybody, let alone to lead, you know, in kind of the ritualistic type of way. Uh, and I, I was like, you know, deer in the headlights. She, she realized that I was not the guy to do this. <laughs> and so I think she ended up doing it. But anyways, as we, as we went through that ritual together, you know, we were praying, but not really talking to God. And one of the fundamental realities of prayer, it's so easily missed. That in prayer, we're talking to the creator and maker and redeemer, bringing our petition to him. And, and if that is true, then it shapes our approach in prayer. It, it captures us with a fear of God as we think about the reality of talking to God, but it also shapes our content. If we're talking to God, then that really impacts what I'm going to talk about, don't you think? Now, if I'm talking in prayer to the people around me, that shapes how I'm going to talk, and, and that's easy to do in public prayer. As a guy who has to do that a lot, it's hard to not think about everyone else listening when you're talking to God. And it's easy to shape your words based on what they're going to hear. They're not your audience. God is. And that shapes what you talk about, what you pray about, what is of concern to the Lord. So from that premise that prayer is primarily an expression of faith, it's a plea of spiritual children, and it is talking to God, I want to take you to one of the many different prayers in the Scripture. Uh, I've taken you before to Nehemiah's prayer, to Jehoshaphat's prayer, to Hannah's prayer, some of Paul's prayers. Uh, I want to show you from another prayer tonight, the, the proof of that test, like uh, of that premise, that prayer is all those things. Let's see it in Psalm 19. And I, I think you will see it there. Uh, really, it's kind of a weird place to go, Psalm 19. I'll admit that to you uh, right up front, because it's not in its entirety a prayer. Uh, the Psalms obviously are the hymnal of the old covenant people of God. They're, they're songs in which they declared the praise of God and cried out to God. But you also know, as we've said many times in our congregational worship, when we're singing, often we're praying too. You know, the very things we're saying to God, we're saying in a prayerful way to the God of heaven. But the real reason I want to come to this text tonight is because I've always been captivated by the last three verses of Psalm 19. And I can't get away from them. Every time I read it, I, I just, I wanted to dig in more to why does he end this way? Now, you know Psalm 19 probably generally, so the first six verses are a, a declaration of the general revelation of God in Scripture or in, in a creation that he makes his glory known in the heavens. And then verse 7, it shifts to the special revelation of God in the law. Uh, and there's all those different words used for the law of God in verses 7 through 11. Uh, and then it, it ends the psalm with this prayer in verses 12 through 14, which is uh, just, it captures my heart every time. So I wanted to to work through this text and hopefully be a help to you as well. So Psalm 19, I'm going to read and then I'll give you some commentary as we're reading as well. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world in them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. 
and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And I'll stop there and just look at that section briefly. There's only one time that God's name is mentioned. That's in verse 1, and it's the generic title for God, the generic name for God, which is El in Hebrew. Uh, and so this is the, the generic, general, broad revelation of God to all people. And you caught that as I read, right? It's, it's everywhere and it's unending. It, it never stops. And there's no part of God's creation that can't see this. This is the basis, by the way, out of which Paul in Romans 1 says that all men are without excuse because they've all seen the divine nature of God and the eternal power of God in the creation of God. And so everyone knows in the depths of their being that God exists and that he is all-powerful. They know that. And when they reject it and turn from it, they're held accountable to the God who made them. That's what he's saying here in verses 1 through 6. Let me keep reading verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Did you notice the shift from the first six verses to now, the start of the seventh verse, we go from general to special revelation, from the generic creation revelation to a specific word of God. And notice the change in titles from L to Yahweh, the all caps L-O-R-D in the English. This is a signpost to you pointing you to the Hebrew title for God, Yahweh. It's his covenant making, covenant keeping name. It's his name specific to his old covenant people. He's identifying himself as their God and they are his people. And he has made himself known specifically to them through his word. And notice that that title is repeated seven times between verses seven and 14. So we had God used once in verse one through verse six, and then seven times in verses seven through 14. So this is a uh, an overabundance of revelation of God. It, it's by the way the poem is set up, he's communicating to you the very thing he's trying to tell you that God's creation generally reveals God in a generic way, kind of a way that deserves one title of God, God. But the law of God, the word of God, reveals God immensely, so much so that his name gets repeated over and over again because it's all about him and makes him known to his people. And then verse 12, we see the prayer begin of the psalmist. Before I read it, just how would you respond as you, if you were writing this poem and you were thinking about the, the creative work of God to make his divine nature and eternal power known, and then you shifted to the amazement of that God choosing to speak so as to be understood, by the way, and to be known. And as you think about this God who speaks to be known, and, and by his word, look at, look at what the word itself does. It revives the soul. It makes the wise, or excuse me, makes the simple wise. 
It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Obviously, these are all spiritual realities in the life of, of the people of God. It shows us that God is true and righteous altogether. And then the, the word is sweet to us. It's our spiritual taste buds. It is sweet to the believer. How would you end that poem? Well, how I would end that poem without knowing this would be an explosion of praise, right? That's how I would end it. Praise be to God. Like, hallelujah, what an amazing God to make himself known in these ways. How does the psalmist end it? Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalm began with describing the glory of God being declared. Verses 1 through 11 describe the intrinsic glory of God. When you talk about the glory of God, there's there's two aspects to his glory. It's his intrinsic glory and his ascribed glory. Verses 1 through 11 are talking about his intrinsic glory. He, he has glory. He is a glorious God. Magnificent, exalted above the heavens. Far beyond all that he has made. Making himself known in all that he has said. He's a glorious God. Ascribed glory is when his creation realizes his glory and declares it back to him. But we don't make God glorious when we say to God, you be glorified. We're not making him glorious. He is glorious. We're recognizing it and ascribing it. That's essentially what the psalmist is doing at the end of the psalm. He is recognizing the intrinsic glory of God. And in light of that revealed glory, he's responding with ascribed glory. And it's not the way I anticipate. But it's an ascribed desire for God to do his work in the psalmist's life so that his life is more glorifying to God. And that's what captured my attention as I walked through the psalm over and over again. I just can't get away from this prayer. I want to have this heart like this psalmist to pray this way. And so what's the response of this psalmist as he sees the general and special revelation of God? He, he glorifies God through prayer. His prayer especially is shaped by who God is and by what God has said. So how he prays is shaped by who God is, verses 1 through 6, and what God has said, verses 7 through 11. And really, prayer that God wants to hear is always rooted in those two realities. Who God is, and what God has said. The, the more simpleton way to say that is, if you want to pray well, know God through His Word. Know God through His Word. Know who He is and know what He has said. And then you will pray in ways that please the Lord. Maybe it's helpful to think of the alternative. So what if your prayer is not rooted in who God is and what God has said? What might your prayer look like? Well, you just think of how Jesus gave alternatives to true prayer in Matthew 6 when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. What was the first one? It was it was hypocritical, uh, self-serving prayer, right? It was to make me look better in front of everyone else by my, my praying. That's kind of self-oriented pietism, right? But if you're not rooted in who God is 
and what God has said, and you start praying, you're going to pray in ways that, that make you look good to other people and become all about you, right? He also goes on to talk about the, the religion of men that has vain repetitions. Don't be like them. Don't be like the pagans who repeat phrases over and over again and think they're going to get a hearing because they keep repeating it. This religious repetition is what you might devolve into if you're not rooted in who God is and what God has said when you pray. And you also might just end up with some man-centered drivel. And by that, I mean you just, you just start blabbering and it's all about you or all about your life, all about what you know. It has nothing to do with God at all because you're not rooted in who God is and what God has said. So the bottom line is if we want to pray more and if we want to pray better, then we must know and grow in knowing who God is and what God has revealed about himself in his word. As the psalmist responds to that general and special revelation, his prayer is shaped in a specific way. You see that in the last three verses. His response to that revelation gives him a desire to pray for, for three things, I think. He prays for God's inspection for God's protection, and for God's sanctification. We see that inspection idea in verse 12. He, because he sees God's glory displayed in creation, he's heard God's glory explained in Revelation, he longs for God's inspection of his own soul in verse 12, right? He says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question. No one can. Left to yourself, you can't. Uh, the error he's talking about there are the, the things you don't even know you're doing wrong. The, the things you'd never be able to figure out on your own. The, the, uh, the, light, the lighter sins in the sense that, that they're just they're mistakes. Like you, you just don't know better. And it's just part of your life. And you just do it. And it's, just, it's sinful, but you don't know anybody. Who can discern that? On your own, you'll never figure that out. And so because the psalmist sees God in creation, his glory displayed hears from God in his word and understands him better. He longs for God to discern his errors, to search him and to know him and to try him. He goes on to say, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Those hidden faults are those, those aspects of, of your uh, personality or uh, your experience, the, the sin patterns that are kind of ingrained in you. Uh, maybe similar to the idea of, of Hebrews 12, that we have those, uh, those sins that, that tend to trip us up, those besetting sin ideas. Uh, for me, just to, I mean, I could give you a hundred, but one example would be that as, a, as the youngest born in my family, uh, I learned how to please people to get my way. I learned how to be very manipulative in my childhood to, to get what I want to do. That's not a statement about youngest kids. This is about me as a youngest child, all right? My dear Lauren, don't hear anything into that, all right? But... I learned that, and it took me a long time to realize and it was God's grace to open my eyes to see that I fear men, and I want them to like me. And, and that's ingrained in my, my pattern of living and my pattern of thinking. I just want people to like me, and so I'll do whatever, I'll say whatever, I'll act like I know something in a conversation that I have no idea what's going on, because I don't want them to think I'm an idiot, and I want them to like me, right? That's sinful. That's a besetting sin. I always have to be on guard. For that and you've got your own and I've got a hundred more. That's what he's praying about. Don't don't let those things capture me. Don't don't let those things be the hidden faults that trip me up and make me displeasing to you. 
he longs for God by his word to examine his heart and his soul and expose these sins. And really, the more we know of God and the more we understand of his perfections, the more we fear him, the more we should long for him to search us and try us and know us, right? The more we see him in his glory, the more we want to be like him. His, his glory is, is repelling and attracting, isn't it? It's repelling in that he's so much different than us. And how could I ever, I have no business being in his presence, but in Christ, it's attractive. I want to be with that God of glory. And I inherently know there's things in me that got to change before that happens. Now, we know the end of the story. We know our theology well enough to know that God glorifies us before he brings us in. He finishes the job. But he's in, we're in process, right? And we're drawn to, to want to be different. That's what he's praying for here. That God, in his mercy, would examine him and inspect him. He also prays for God's protection in verse 13. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We don't know at what point in David's life he wrote this psalm. We really have no idea. But we know David had great transgression in his life, which marked him, tripped him up severely, and shaped his life. And he, he knows the devastation that sin can do in the life of a believer. And so he longs for God to keep him from his tendency to willfully turn from God and go his own way. And he knows that tendency, even as a, as a follower of Jesus, he knows that tendency to to turn and, and do his own thing and kind of uh, thumb his nose at God and say, you know what, I know you'll forgive me anyways, and I really want this, right? And we never would admit that ahead of time, but that's how we think. That's how we sometimes act. And he says, keep me from that, protect me from that. In other words, if you don't intervene here, I'm going to do that. That's who I am. I need your help, the psalmist says. And he sees in Scripture, especially previous saints who weren't kept from these great sins, these willful turnings from God. And he knows the damage it did, and he knows how it changes the course of a man's life, and he longs to not be counted among that number. Here's the captivating thing to me, though. He has just talked about how the Word of God is reviving and makes the simple wise and gives understanding to the eyes and all that stuff about the Word. But he doesn't think that the nature of the word is enough for him to be kept from these willful sins. He has to pray about it. In other words, the word will do its job. I'm not minimizing the sufficiency of the word. I'm saying for him to internalize the truth of the word and to be kept from sins, he knows there has to be a work of the Spirit of God in him. He has to be protected by God so that he doesn't shun God's word that's perfect and sufficient and go his own way. He longs for God to protect him from his own sinfulness. He wants to be a servant of righteousness and not a servant of sin. This is Romans 6, 17 through 19. You're going to serve one or the other. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Apart from Christ, you're a slave to sin. There's no option. In Christ, you can be a slave to righteousness. You can, you can do his will by his grace, for his glory. That's what the psalmist is praying for here. Help me to walk in a way that is honoring to you. And then he prays for God's sanctification in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. Tie this back to how he started the psalm, seeing God for who he is in creation, hearing from God all that God wants him to know about himself through revelation. The psalmist is compelled to pray that his words from his mouth and his meditations in his heart, the depths of his very thought life, that all of that would be acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. Now, left to your own, you're not going to desire this. Left by yourself, apart from the grace of God, you're, you're going to just be quite comfortable with your own thoughts and words, right? I mean, that just by yourself, let's be honest, we all kind of think we've got it figured out. We kind of think our worldview of stuff and how we think about things and how we judge things, how we understand life, and we, we kind of got it wrapped up, right? And Brad, about 18 or so, you, you kind of think you got the world by the tail and you got this thing figured out. About 25, you realize, ah, maybe not. But you still realize, you know, I, I still think I got it pretty close. I got stuff to learn, sure. You know, we play the humility card once in a while, but we're all pretty comfortable with how we think and what we say. And Jesus has told us clearly that the words of our mouth are the effusion of our hearts. They, they bubble up from our hearts, right? So every word out of your mouth has a source in your inner man. And so you want to know how your heart's doing, you look at your words, right? That's, that's the teaching of Jesus very clearly. And we tend to think our words are pretty okay. I mean, yeah, we know we're not perfect, but we generally give ourselves a pass in how we talk about things, correct? And even when we're sharing you know, hard things about people, judgmental gossip. We give ourselves a pass on those things because, you know, we see it rightly. We're pretty comfortable with how we see it and how we talk. The only correction to that is the revelation of God. Seeing God for who He is. Seeing the display of His glory in creation. Being humbled by the majesty of a God who made a world like this. And then seeing and hearing the, the truth of God in His Word and being humbled before a God who speaks and dissects your heart with His Word, lays it bare, and you're like, whoa, He's talking about me. Yeah, He knows you that well. He knows me that well. That humbles you. And that gives you a desire to want change, right? Now when I see that, in when I see God and me in relationship to Him, I want to be different. I want the inner man to be changed. My thoughts to be shaped by God in His revelation and my words to communicate what my heart now thinks. This is why, the, by the way, we go to places like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. On a side note, my two favorite vacation spots at this point in my life. I'm sure I'll go somewhere else. But I've been to a lot of places. I have never felt so small as when I stood at the brink of Niagara Falls, rushing thousands of gallons of tens of thousands of gallons of water over the brink, minute after minute, and this roar deafening every other thought. And you can't help but stand there and Forget about you. And you know, to, to have a better life, you don't need more of you. Like we all inherently understand that. 
Our world wants to tell you different. The world wants to give you the gospel of self. The, the, the more you need, of, you need more of you to be a better you. That's the inherent message of most of our world. But you absolutely need less of you, and we all know that. That's why you go to, the Niagara, to Niagara Falls or to the Grand Canyon. Because you stand there and you look out at this enormous, unbelievable sight, and you forget about you. And you start to realize there is a God who made all this. Even in a sin-cursed world, made such beauty as that. And you feel so incredibly small. And then you open the Word, and you see this God go from massive, amazing, glorious Creator to personal Redeemer. Savior of my soul through the sending of His Son. A forgiver of my sins through the shed blood of His own Son. That humbles you all the more. And you long then, like the psalmist does, to look and to speak and to think like God would want you to. Notice the inside and outside nature of this prayer in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That's, in, that's outside words and inside meditation. This is the whole package deal. This is clean every part of the car when you go to the car wash. and You buy, you buy the gold package. That's what he's asking for here. I want everything, Lord. Don't just help my outside man to look good. I want you to sanctify and purify every last aspect of this. And he knows he can't do it himself. And so he prays in dependence upon the Lord to plead with God to make him holy in this way. It's a God-wrought sanctification that he longs for. Notice also the quorum Deo aspect of that. Quorum Deo means before the face of God. Notice that this is before the face of God. He says, let my mouth, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. This is all that matters to the psalmist. Having had God revealed to him in creation and in his word, he longs to be acceptable to God alone. Oh, for a singular zeal like that for all of us, right? To want God to be pleased with what I think and what I say would produce a life that glorifies Him. This is what he prays for, a life that is acceptable to God. Those are our words of sacrifice, by the way. It's similar to how Paul talks in Philippians 2 when he's describing the sanctification process. And he says, work out your own salvation. Fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And he goes on to talk about how he, as, as the apostle, has been a, a sacrifice on the offering of their faith. In other words, he has invested in them to be sanctified as a sacrifice to God. That's what he, in this psalm, is praying for, David. is Make me an acceptable sacrifice on the altar of other people's faith for your glory. And then notice that it's dependent on God. So it's inside and outside. It's quorum Deo. It's before the face of God. And it is dependent on God. He says, my rock and my redeemer. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, he is not praying, Lord, just help me figure this out on my own. Help my words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be pleasing to you. Help me work that out. No, he is dependent entirely upon God to do this in him. God is his rock and his redeemer. He's taken up refuge in God. 
God is his salvation. The Lord is his salvation. God has redeemed him. And based on that relationship that's settled, he longs for God to purify his thoughts and his words. And it always goes that way in the Christian life. Get that backwards, you're going to spin your wheels, get frustrated, and go backwards. And when you put sanctification in front of salvation or you forget about salvation and pursue sanctification absent of thoughts about your redemption, you will spin your wheels and get frustrated. You have to root your pursuit of sanctification in the realities of your redemption. Another way to say that, a simple way, is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. The only way you're going to have the desire and the power of God's grace to be holy is because he has saved you through the blood of his son. And as you see and understand that with fresh eyes of faith every day, you long to be holy as God is holy, and you pray like the psalmist prayed. This is what Revelation will do to your prayer life. The more you see of who God is, the more you hear of what God has said, the more you will desire God's inspection, God's protection, and God's sanctification in your life. May God, in his kindness, produce that in each of us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and its power upon our soul. We pray like the psalmist that you, by your mercy, would examine our hearts, show us these hidden sins, these defaults of our practice and our character that are displeasing to you. Make them known to us, and by your Spirit, help us to deal with them, to repent of them, and to grow away from them. We pray also, Father, that you would protect us from these egregious sins by which we would turn our attention and our path away from you and go our own way. Would you mercifully protect us from ever ruining our lives and the lives of those we love by going in sin in that way. And Father, we beg of you for your sanctification. We ask that you would so change us that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.